Welcome to the podcast, where we provide regular interviews with pharmacy leaders, entrepreneurs, and members of the Platform Alliance Group. We cover the key challenges, opportunities, and practical solutions for pharmacy leaders. The pharmacy industry is a dynamic and vital part of the healthcare industry, impacting the lives of millions of Australians. But we know that success in this ever-evolving landscape requires more than just a prescription for medication. It calls for a unique blend of knowledge, adaptability, and a vision for the future. I'm your host, Melody Mugari, and together we will embark on a journey of empowerment, motivation, and growth. My guest today is proudly brought to you by the Platform Alliance Group, Australia's fastest-growing community pharmacy group. So today, my guest is Michael Flannery. In my opinion, he is a legend in the pharmacy industry. He is CEO of Life Pharmacy Group, co-founder and director of the Platform Alliance Group, director of AquaCare, which centers around animal pharmaceuticals and health, as well as the director of Pharmacy Catalyst. Welcome to the podcast. So, Mr. Flannery, I've got a question for you. Yes, when Melody. Do you find the time to do all these things? Uh, Melody, I'm, I'm I'm a very flexible personality, which anyone who's seen my profile or worked with me would appreciate. Which is um, good in that I can juggle things pretty well, but uh, not so good when people are relying upon me for deadlines. But I think it comes down to if you're passionate about something, you find time for it, and um, you need to follow what your passion is to enjoy life, and that's what uh, my goal every day is, and um, I get a sense of satisfaction in what I do, and that drives, you know, being able to balance more probably in the average day than a lot of people would want. And sometimes, you know, you look back and go, I probably could have had a bit more time out, but that's that's life, and it's fun. That's great. As long as you're having fun, right? That's the main objective of life. Yeah, I think I think you got to have a laugh. Yes, yeah. definitely. I looked at your profile and discovered that you went to the University of Sydney. Yes. And you were there. The years of 1985 and 90, 90, is it 88? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I did think my, my academic record was going to be broadcast, but that's okay. So I started um, as a first year in 83 yeah. and I finished my B-Farm in 86. And in 1987, I got accepted to do the Diploma of Hospital Pharmacy, which um, I saw as another challenge in understanding, I understood community pharmacy very well, having grown up in a, a community pharmacy family. And I wanted the challenge of seeing what hospital was like. And uh, I did a diploma of hospital pharmacy and followed that with a maternity leave position for 12 months at St. George Hospital, where I predominantly worked in a little bit in the basement pharmacy, doing um, the ward rounds, but more so in oncology, uh, pediatrics, mental health, and ICU, which I really enjoyed. But um, I sort of left that far, that hospital career behind when I went west to, to do some work in Forbes for my dad. Oh, so your dad actually owned a pharmacy. And is that what drove the passion to do pharmacy? Yeah, look, I grew up, so my dad was a pharmacist in a town called Forbes, which is five hours west of Sydney, population just over 8,500 people. And so his family, like our, our Flannery family, were mm. you know sort of very early settlers in that space and were into hotels and pubs. And um, dad grew up. Um, living on the veranda of the local hotel where his um, mother, who was a widow at that stage, ran the hotel with her uh, brother-in-law. And he was um, went to the local school and the family saved up money to send him off to university where he studied pharmacy at Sydney Uni. Uh, yeah. That was the only university you could study pharmacy in those days. And dad then did his apprenticeship in Sydney and then came back and settled back in Forbes. And I was fortunate in growing up in the, in the community of Forbes when your father's the local pharmacist to you get a lot of insights into the role of a, a pharmacist, both within the, the trading hours of the pharmacy, but also the expectations of the community over and above what your role is, yeah. but also in his seeing his personality, understanding his personality, he was a very giving parent and a, a person to the community. So I grew up with a role model that community pharmacy was more than just dispensing medications. It was actually all about the patient in so many different ways. So Yes, I left school, wasn't really sure what to do, new small business, new pharmacy, and thought that would be a logical three years for me. Mm -hmm. um, as it turned out, it was 
three plus one plus another one, but that was <laughs> life as a student is always fun. And, um, yeah, so I had a, a very good introduction to pharmacy at, at some stage. I did think I might continue on and do medicine. Um, mm -hmm. as a lot of people who do pharmacy probably thought at the time, but once I got my feet on the ground in a community pharmacy, I, I realized that was what was for me. And I really also enjoyed the management challenge. So that gave me the opportunity to focus and, um, you know, that's where my career path has really been focused on ever since. So your father has been the driving force to the passion you have in pharmacy today. Yeah, I'd say so. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, he was very much involved in setting up the first aged care facility in Forbes. He established a, um, a place called Lockhaven, which was for kids with Down syndrome. Um, so he, he had his sort of, you know, fingers, a lot of pies, but it was always around welfare and well-being and community. And, um, I suppose it was, you know, I learned that from he and mum and their involvement in sporting clubs and community clubs. Uh, I also, funnily enough, dad's younger brother, Bill also did pharmacy and he was a pharmacist in a town called Canoundra, which is a little village actually about 45 minutes from Forbes. And as it turned out, my mother's brother, um, Paul, um, is also a pharmacist. So I not only had my dad, but two uncles on either side of the family. So I've had some very, very good support, very good role models over the years. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a great way to start your career as a pharmacist with those sort of people giving you advice and support. There was no escaping from pharmacy. It's in your blood, no, yeah. It's in your yeah, blood. you could say I never, never, had, never had a chance, Melody, not to be a pharmacist, maybe. Yes. No, never. Um, I've had the pleasure of actually hearing your first day as a registered pharmacy. Now, could you share with the audience, if you're comfortable to do so, that very first day? Because it was actually quite impactful when I heard it. Um, so yeah, so my uh, first day as I came home, I worked for my dad as a registered pharmacist. Um, yeah, and I was quite nervous because coming back and a working for your dad, um, expectations of people, I really knew a lot about, you know, dispensing, but I, you know, back in those days, you didn't learn a lot about over the counter medicines and things. So this, you had a lot of people coming in asking for advice and, you know, I was quite nervous, went to work and I sort of stepped up, put my white coat on. I had my long white socks on and my shorts. It was summertime in Forbes. And, um, my dad said, right, you're ready to go. I said, yep. He said, first job for the day. I said, yep. And he went out the back and he came back with the broom. I said, ah, oh. he said, um, I'd like you to go and sweep the front footpath. And I went, okay. Um, okay. And I'd, you know, I'd swept the path as a messenger boy growing up and as a student. And, you know, here I was thinking there was some, you know, formal introduction to being a, a pharmacist in Forbes. And, and what I understood at the time was, and looking back was for dad, it was all about leadership that when you transition from, you know, especially when you're the son of the owner and you transition as a uni student and then an intern to a pharmacist, that, um, you shouldn't be able to ask people to do anything that you're not willing to do yourself. So by setting the, 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 the standard that, you know, I was happy to go out and sweep the front footpath every morning not only it was showing that it was not beneath me and it should not be beneath any pharmacist to do any job in a community pharmacy. It was also the opportunity that standing on the front footpath of Forbes at 8.30 in the morning, you had people dropping by to get their paper, to get their bread. And so it was actually an opportunity to meet people in the community and have a chat. And yeah, dad's nickname actually was have a chat because he used to love talking to people. And I probably also, you know, learned a lot of non pharmacy things from dad and my mum as role models in Forbes. And, you know, that was a good one I learned very early on in leadership. It's actually a very good quality to actually have as a pharmacist to be able to bridge that gap so that you can actually communicate with your patients, because that actually enhances the quality of care you give your patients at the end of the day. Um, yes. Which actually leads me to my next question. The reason why... And I'll let the audience know that I actually asked that you be my mentor. And it was simply because the way you care about the community and the help of the wider community just struck a chord with me. And one thing I always hear you say is to look at a patient and look at patient 360, sort of as an all-round holistic. Do you mind elaborating on your view of how you've view we as pharmacists should be handling our patients? I think that we can look through a lens in our role as a community pharmacist. Do we have a part scientist in our, in our breeding and in our training and our education? 
But I think the bigger role of the community pharmacist is what they can establish, what they can build in talking to people. And the people who come in and, and drop off a prescription, um, people, whether it be for a chronic medication or acute medication, where they come in for advice, it gives the pharmacist the opportunity to talk to someone um, and listen to understand that there may be things outside what they've come in for that the pharmacy and the pharmacist may be able to help them with. And I think, again, you know, I think whether you grow up in Forbes or grow up in a suburb in Sydney, there's so many people who don't have the same level access to um, education, to um, good nutritious food, to health, that, you know, the socioeconomic um, lifestyle of our patient database or patient community is so variable that it's really important we understand what drives that person's needs. And I think having a conversation with someone and understanding what actually is driving them, what is actually they're looking for in that communication and what they may not be speaking about, but they may be intending to um, you know, ask advice for, I think it's a really innate quality of community pharmacists to be able to elaborate on that and, and evaluate when someone comes in for a conversation about a medication, what else there is that we can help them with. And I suppose as you see all sorts of walks of life as a community pharmacist, we deal with people in all sorts of socioeconomic um, levels and people with different needs, whether it be um, social needs, physical needs, emotional needs. And I think that the perceptive pharmacist is one who looks outside just the communication over a prescription and looks at, at, at the holistic well-being of a patient. So yeah, I talk about patient 360 a lot. I, I also talk about a lot of intangible care that we can provide as pharmacists. It's just not a, a product in a box um, or a vaccination. It's, it's the conversations, it's the understanding, it's sometimes just the listening ear. And we've all had patients who will come in and we know that they've dropped a script in for you know, Panamax. They probably don't need their Panamax. They've just dropped it in to have a social outing and, and they know that they can sit down and lean on the counter and have a chat to you or to one of the team who've looked after them for many years. And I think as community pharmacists, that's a really important role we play. It's not a tangible one. And in a time now where the government's looking at restructuring the 60-day dispensing policies and our remuneration in the dispensary, I think what they're missing is all those intangible benefits to the healthcare system and to the patient's well-being that a pharmacy offers. And not just the pharmacists in the white coat, it's the team member on the till who greets and says hello to everyone as they walk in and spends an extra couple of minutes chatting about their kids or, you know, learning about, you know, their mum's had a fall. You know, it's all those incidental things that we do that are really important for the well-being of people. And I think, you know, we can look at policies for what they are, but I think there's a lot of things that um, are, are completely mis misunderstood by the government and what we do in community pharmacy. That's very true, Michael, actually. And since you've brought up 60 Days, um, there was actually something I read um, at the very beginning that you actually were quoted on. And if you give me a moment, I'm just going to read the post and ask you to sort of expand on it. So I read an article and you wrote, we, PAG, want every pharmacy owner to know that we are here to help you manage and understand the impact and provide you with a practical plan so that you and your team can focus on delivering the best care to your patients. So from what I've heard so far, not only is your passion with the patients, but it's also with the pharmacies that are within the PAG group. And I know right now you're currently in WA visiting members there. And if memory serves correctly, I think you were just in Forbes just the other day because I saw a picture of you in Aramine. And you've been basically touring Australia for the last month or so, just visiting pharmacies, just letting the members know that you're here for them. And if anyone has any questions, they can come directly to you and ask, how have you found the feel? What's the pulse? What's the feeling on the ground? Uh, Melody, as an owner, I, uh, the first impression we all got from the government announcement was shock and panic. And I think probably having an old head 
and having seen transitions in the industry in the last 30, 35 years, um, where massive changes were brought in um, and announced, but probably none of the announcements we've seen over the years have ever had as drastic effect from a timeline point of view and a scale point of view. And when I sat back, I just, I, in, you know, I've got a number of partners in pharmacy ownership with myself and a number of them are looking at increasing their equity and new partners coming in who've been working managers for a number of years. And my first advice to them was just stay calm for the moment until we can pull all the details apart and understand the pathway forward. And I think one of the good things that PAG has done as an organization, I'm, and I'm really proud of the team that sat back and went straight away, what can we do to help our member? And within our PAG team, we're very fortunate people like myself, Felicia, and a whole lot of other um, pharmacists themselves who have worked in pharmacy, who have been owners of pharmacies, who understand how they work, and also understand how we can go about a way to help pharmacists overcome these challenges. And the PAG team, with combination of the, the marketing team, the pharmacists, the, the, the buy it right team doing the numbers, the data guys pulling data out of pharmacies. Suddenly within you know, 48 hours, we had a what we call a clawback calculator. And that has really been evolving and being tweaked over the last six weeks. And the PAG team, you know, led by Dave, the CEO and Steve, my co-founder, we decided the best thing was to actually probably turn the, the, turn the momentum in the, in the storytelling of the 60-day dispense, leave the negotiations with the government to the pharmacy guild and by all means to all the, all the, all the various owners to go and represent individually. But as a PAG organization, the best thing we felt we could do and what we've done subsequently is go and talk to members about where we saw opportunities to help them. First thing is acknowledge it's going to be a, a stressful time for them all at the moment, but also then say, however, we've got your back. And as we know, each pharmacy is very different. Each pharmacy has different um, rent to, to turnover metrics, different staffing weights, different aged care facilities, methadone, pay, whatever it may be. But within the PAG experience, we have enough to be able to say, we've got a bespoke model to look at how we can help you plan to take on the challenges of the 60-day policy from a financial point of view and apply, you know, there might be 13 to 15 little levers that we can do within your business um, to help you claw back some of the revenue that may be about to head out the door when these policies come in, if they get legislated. But also, so the roadshows were really important because and the webinars and the the beauty of I like that the the mindset of the PAG team went we can do this for our members which we supported our CDCs our Advantage our PAL members and our Catalyst members and then we went you know what this is about the industry being sustainable and there's a lot of single ownership pharmacy owners who are out there really worrying about what do I do and where do I go for advice so we open up the webinars to the industry and you know, we had people from we had accountants we had solicitors we had brokers. We had members of other groups aboard and, and really it's all about PAG helping the industry and using our insights for our members and, and every owner that is out there in Australia. And it's not a good position when you've got a mortgage um, possibly on your house, you've got a, a business loan against your business, you've got commitments to people who you've employed and, and relying upon you after a couple of years of you know, the pandemic for um, employment. You've got a high cost of living. You've got all these elements coming together. Mental health has been a big issue for owners and team members in the community. And suddenly this big pressure cookers put on owners because the government is going to take all this money out of the system. So our view was we really need to get out there quickly and tell people we're here. We don't have all the answers yet. And not every answer, not every lever will be applicable to every store. But across the scope of what we're doing as an organization, we can help every pharmacy. And... As well as that, we're also, and I know I've talked to you about this a number of times, there's new categories which we need to probably dust off and really explore and fast track evolving them to produce and build programs and services that community pharmacies can offer their patient um, cohorts because community health and access to healthcare is not getting any better through any of these government changes. Uh, regardless of bulk billing incentives for doctors, we still know GPs are really hard to get into in all communities, Sydney, regional, rural, remote. And I think the role of community pharmacist is going to get even more important. And this is what I suppose the frustration with the government is they're looking at us through uh, you know, cookie cutter numbers and number crunches. They're not looking at the holistic role we play. The you know A lot of our services that we provide are co-funded by our dispensing fees. We choose to do free deliveries. We choose to 
provide um, DAA packs to private patients below what it costs us to do them. So by pulling this funding mechanism out in one part, it's like pulling the piece out of the puzzle, the whole puzzle collapses. So our concern is that the well-being of the patient who we've looked after through all these other services will be challenged because we will have to actually pay charge fees for areas that we haven't before because the funding of the dispensary is reduced. And that's a worry for someone who's got an elderly parent or a, a, a chronically unwell sibling or you know a, a, a someone at home who they care for and someone's in an aged care facility and an aging population staying at home are more at risk now because we won't have the connectivity to these patients. Um, I know the government say they nearly come in every two months for their medication, but a lot of them want to come in once a month or, or more often for that incidental conversation we talked about earlier. And we still need to have the people to have those conversations because that's really important. So it's not just about a medication being dispensed. It's actually about the conversation and about that conversation extending into the conversation when the delivery driver drops it off to Mrs. Smith at home and checks that she's okay when you drop the medication in or drop the frozen meals in if you were delivering frozen meals. So it's a lot more than just the one dimension. So I often, as we've talked about, Melly, talk about the intangibles and everything's multidimensional. There's more than one dimension to what we do. And I think that at the moment, um, you know, you've got one thing the government's saying, we're going to expand your scope of practice, which tick, great, finally. But then on the other hand, they're saying, we're going to make it hard for you to do your daily jobs because we're going to defund all these services through the 60-day dispense fee. And so you're in this quandary of what do you do? Do you retreat and try and save money and see what happens? Or do you, do, do you invest and say, well, you know what? I'm going to back community farms. I'm going to back our team and I'll back our guild. And we're just going to business as usual. And if not, we'll fast track some of these innovations to make sure we're embedded in the community and hope that the some common sense prevails in the policy. Either it's changed dramatically or it's, um, you know, it's it, the system we weaned off the dispense fare over a period of time or the molecules reduced, whatever it may be. There's a number of mechanisms being discussed um, that's beyond my pay grade. But hopefully, you know, in a worst case scenario, pharmacies are more resilient and they've got more tools through the, especially through the PAG toolbox, as I call it, to be able to survive through the next you know, three to four years and until we th see where things settle. Hearing what you say, it's a mixture of feelings on the ground, um, but then PAG provides that level of hope to yes. its members and not only to our members, but to also to the wider pharmacy groups that are even out there where when it comes to this, we're all bands of brothers. We're all banding yeah. together to get the better outcome that we all hope for. Now, what do you perceive is the future of pharmacy? The future looks bright for you? For me, it does. I Look, and, and you referenced my road trip earlier. I took Dave and a team of PAG people um, through the Canberra, um, down to Wagga, out to West Wyland, where we hosted one of the webinars. Um, the Our Catalyst member out there, Brian Monaghan's the local mayor. So we, we did the webinar out of the mayor's office, which was a bit of fun. Then we cut across to Condoblin, a single pharmacy town west of Forbes and back into Forbes. And it's all the, the guys, Sarah and Jack and my team's there, and then moved back to Sydney through another couple of visits. And I, I think what it cemented for me and what it was great to take Dave, our CEO, out to show him is that I think across the seven or eight pharmacies we saw, there would have been 21 to 24 clinic rooms. So to me, and you know, my passion is around the clinic room, the health hub, the professional programs. I think that what it showed was the far, these, these pharmacists were committing to the future position. And some of these clinic rooms were built three, four, five years ago before COVID. So before we had vaccination as a core offer, um, we were hoping the government would move this way. We we're hoping the industry would move this way. We always knew the community needed us to move this way because we knew healthcare isn't keeping up for patient needs. So for me, there is hope if the industry takes hold of these opportunities. I think if we're giving, you know, COVID vaccinations and flu vaccinations behind curtains in the corner of a pharmacy, we may have been able to get through that in COVID because of the urgency and the immediacy of the, the need. But we, I think we all need to step back now and go, we would need to provide a really professional environment for our patients. So when they walk in, they feel as though, and they get that sense that they've always had that trust with us as pharmacists. They've had great trust with our teams over the years, been built up 
through visitations every two to three weeks and years of loyalty to pharmacies, or, you know, they've, they've come in because they're visiting a town, whichever way it may be, if you can bring the clinic rooms to be a feature in what we do as a pharmacist, more so than the dispensary these days, it, it really cements our position of being in, in the primary healthcare. And I think that that to me excites me. I, you look at models in particularly in Canada, which I know our pharmacy guild are aligning some of our strategies for Australia, future Australia, healthcare and pharmacy. And, you know, the fact they can do immunization, they can do um, travel vaccinations. You've got a whole scope of, you know, limited minor ailment prescribing. It takes the pressure off the GP. It adds the, um, the satisfaction to a clinically trained pharmacist that they're able to do something there and then at that inter intervention with the patient if it meets the protocol of that particular program. And it, it, it has to help the patient from a, access to a convenient, you know, world-trained clinician in a pharmacy environment. And we have to step up to that level of training. We have to step up to level of investment in our property in clinic rooms and equipment and technology. And to me, I think that excites me for a, a future pharmacist, clinical pharmacist, for a future owner. Um, I think that's great. And I was fortunate last night, we had a, a dinner with some pharmacists here and there were three young pharmacists in Perth and all at different ages and stages. One was about to buy into a pharmacy and a bit worried about 60 days, understandably. Another two, one was uh, intern of the year in WA, um, an energetic young guy. And Kieran was, all, all he could talk about is the opportunity in pharmacy at, at his age and stage. And I thought it's great if we could take a you know, some DNA from him and, and, and spread it to all the owners who are feeling the pressure to say, you know, it's not all gloom and doom at the moment. Yes, it's, I'm not by any means, the financial impacts of this policy are, are, are going to be devastating, but there is a mindset that we can overcome this by engaging and forging ahead with these scope of practice opportunities and doing it properly. And that means maybe spending a bit of money to invest in automation and robotics to free up time for a pharmacist to, to be in the clinic room more often or technology that enables communications to patients about appointments and follow-up and how did your treatment go or you just started an antiviral yesterday, are you feeling okay today? All these sort of pieces are available. We just don't have them in a, in a cohesive, cohesive platform at the moment, but that's one thing PAG are looking at as part of health tech in the future is bringing the patient closer to the pharmacist from a communication and engagement point of view. And I think they're exciting things that will enable the viability of pharmacy to continue from a financial ownership point of view, but also the pathway from a clinical pharmacist perspective is we came out of pharmacy really, unless you went into community, you were a dispenser. If you went into the hospitals, you're a dispenser with a little bit more clinical challenge ahead of you. You went into industry, which is a whole different and whether it be research or sales, pharmacists come out of university now. And even within the community pharmacy, the pathways are, are really exciting and they're great opportunities for young pharmacists to be able to specialized diabetic educators, men's health experts, you know, um, vaccination experts. You know, I think it's a great opportunity for pharmacy. Um, I think we've just got to get the foundations of um, the implications of the 60-day rule. We've got to get through this next six months. Um, we've got to look after each other. We've got to, you know, let down our barriers and share information across organizations that may over the years have competed. Uh, whether it be brands, whether it be wholesale brands, whether it be ownership groups. And I think for the better of the community pharmacy industry, we, we really need to work as a team. And I know that's something you're very passionate about, Melody, um, working as a team and getting benefits out of, you know, having different people with different skills, different mindsets and listening and coming up with a plan. And I think that's, you know, where PAG are, are at at the moment. We're, we're listening and the visitations, the, the different states, the webinars is all about getting, give us feedback. Tell us about your story. Tell us about what you think. Um, and then internally we're, we're, we're using that information to say, how can we help that member in Katanning or how can we help that member in, you know, Wallerawang, whatever it may be. Um, and that's, I think the beauty of the, what PAG represents now is a lot of expertise. I'd hate to think, I think between Steve and I, we, as owners, we, uh, it was quoted, we have over 65 years of ownership experience. Um, I could say I've had 20 and he's had 45, but if you watch this. <laughs> nice throw, nice me. throw. Um, but if you go go to the wider PAG team, you know, with, with Johnny and Mike and all the, the team that we have, with they've worked in pharmacy, Andrew, Nicole, Felicia, Natalie, you name it. We've got a team of people who've got so much experience, yourself, both working in pharmacy, working with pharmacy, 
that I'm, I'm really confident we're going to help pharmacists get through this. It won't be without its pain. It won't be without loss in revenue and profit at different stages. But I think we've just got to keep calm and, and work together. And I think as an organization, we are building and providing tools to help people move through this you know, really tough time. Well, I just want to let you know that Steve is probably going to be one of my guests. And <laughs> I will be quoting you in saying that he's got the 40 yes. and you've got the lesser share. Um, let's see well, how... I get a writer, as, long as, I get, as long as I get a writer reply, Melody, I, I won't mind. Okay, cool. Now, I'm also going to call you out because on that road trip that you went on, I had the pleasure yes. of actually accompanying you. And yes. seeing all your pharmacies and seeing all the work that you and the partners have done. And at the end of it, the only words I could truly use to express how I felt was inspired. Because it was wonderful to see the level of quality of care and the services that Life Group offers the communities where they are. And not only that, but every team member I spoke to was passionate. There was, you could feel the passion each time you walk in. There was pride as well of yeah. working at Life Group um, Pharmacy, whatever, whether it was Orange, whether it was Kuhleman Court, the pride was clearly visible. Forbes, it was tangible. Now, you, you didn't start with all those pharmacies. I'm pretty sure you did it. You probably no. started with one. Could you tell me how did one develop into two or three? And the next thing you know, Instago, how did that happen? What was that epiphanous moment? How, yeah, how did you infuse your passion? Um. Melody, there's been a lot of, I mean, over that journey. So I bought my first store in 1990. So over the last 33 years, there's been a lot of inflections where I've been in a position where things have either landed for me. Um, I've been in the right place at the right time, but probably most importantly, I've had the right people around me. And I talked earlier about the influence of my parents and yeah, I got off to a great start. You know, I, went home for three months, um, to do a locum. I thought after having an extra year at uni, I owed my, my parents at least a, a holiday as a registered pharmacist so they could go overseas. So I went home for three months to Forbes and my ambition was to travel overseas. All my mates at the time were getting jobs in the UK in hospitals. And I thought that sounded like a great time. It sounded also like a bit of an extension of uni life back at just relocating to the UK. And I thought that, that sounds like good fun. Um, as it turned out, my three months turned into 13 years in Forbes because I went home. I just got a real sense of enjoyment for the community. And I, I played rugby for Forbes and met a whole spectrum of people that I, I didn't know. I'd been away to boarding school when I was 11. So I hadn't actually been in Forbes back home other than school holidays for 11 or 12 years. So, you know, when you go back to those communities, you've been away to boarding school, you, you know, you have some challenges to integrate back in. And, you know, I found playing rugby was probably, for me, sport was the best way to integrate myself. Great. It happened that I worked for my dad for the year. A pharmacy down the road came up. There were three pharmacies in Forbes and it was an Amcal pharmacy. And then Amcal became a big part of my journey as well. And, and so I bought that store. And when I say I bought it, I probably had no idea. I signed documents. My dad was sort of talking me through what it meant. There was a bit of a this would be a good investment. And if you really in three to five years, you really don't want to be in Forbes, you can sell the asset and, and move. Um, and I took over in February, 1990. And yeah, unfortunately my dad passed away about six weeks later, um, just very suddenly. And it threw me into a complete spin. I had no, I had really no idea what I was doing. And, um, so I had two pharmacies. My mum wasn't a pharmacist. So I actually, I suddenly went, well, I've sort of, I, I've bitten off a lot more than I really understood. And I looked back and I had great mentors. Um, there were pharmacist mates of my dad's, there were mates of mine who turned up in town and helped. And I ran dad's store with, um, locums for about oh, three years. And I learned the other side of pharmacy in that, yeah, look in those community towns, the, the, the bond is to you and to the, to the regular person they get to see and speak and. I had great locums. I also had really bad locums. 
Um, the the great locums were fantastic. They they were involved in the community. They they kept the team morale up. They looked after our patients um, like we would have. Then I had you know locums that you know disappeared and out the back and didn't turn up to work and you know and so you, you sort of learned a lot about what you wanted to represent as an owner and as a pharmacist yeah. in that period of time. And eventually we decided to merge the two businesses and it was a tough decision because we, we literally, um, I was in MCAL, um, and MCAL I had found probably something that, you know, I was very reliant upon my, I would have been very reliant upon my dad in how does things operate? Cause you know, I'd, I'd only really worked for him for a year and you weren't still, there's so much to learn about running a pharmacy and especially about managing people. That's probably the biggest thing I had no idea on. And, um, you know, I was wet behind the ears. I was 23, I think at the time and juggling this, trying to be the local pharmacist, trying to play rugby, trying to work out, do I really want to be stuck in Forbes? And, you know, MTEL, I met some great mentors from MCAL and they were probably, I don't want to insult them, but between five and 15 years older than myself, people like Peter Madden and, and, uh, Peter Gissing from Wagga, Michael Clifford from Tumut. Um, and yeah, John Hamblin from young. And these were my dad's generation and, and in between. And yeah, they, there was never a moment you didn't feel you could pick up the phone and ask these guys for advice, but even more, you know, astonishingly, they would just drop into Forbes. Yeah. You, know, you know, Mick, what are you doing in Forbes from Tumut? Oh, mate, just driving through, but they were just picking a reason to come and visit you. And I, and I learned in that, you know, sort of 90 through to 94, five, the importance of networking and um, having, I suppose back then, unofficial mentors, people who is looking out for you, helping you through the the tough times in the industry. And that's that stage, the government changed margins in the industry. And it was a massive, that's when we closed the doors and marched on Canberra. And I was just going, what have I got myself in for? But, you know, it, it things panned out. MCAL was very good to me. Um, and we merged, eventually merged the stores into MCAL. Some great people who had worked for my dad for 20, 30, 40 years, who, you know, said, look, Michael, it's time, time to retire. Um, and they'd been great stalwarts to the community. But, you know, the beauty was that we, we, we got this into this rhythm of, you know, we we're putting morning teas on for the Cancer Foundation. And they'd say Marcia and Sheila and Lorraine and particularly those three go, well, we'd love to come back. We don't want to pay, but we want to see the customers. We'll do the morning tea. So we went through this phase and I just got married and I just come to town with you know, a lot more bigger picture marketing ideas than what I ever had. And so we then put all uh, these new initiatives in store around community awareness programs and put the look good, feel better in for female cancer patients who needed, you know, the, losing their eyebrows and hair and things that weren't in regional areas. I thought, wow, there's this huge gap of what I learnt and saw in Sydney. And in Sydney, I'd worked for my uncle in the Surrey Hills area. So access to major hospitals, medical centers, pathology, everything was around the corner. You go back to Forbes and realize it's an hour and a half in the car to Orange or it's a five hour trip to Sydney. People in community towns go, gee, Sydney, that's a scary place. I don't want to go there. And understandably, they weren't used to travel to these bigger towns. So we tried to bring the best of, I suppose, healthcare into Forbes. And and the, the thing about it all was yeah, you had these team members who'd worked for years who still wanted to come back and co commit and offer to the community by offering morning teas and helping you do promotions. And it was a really great journey. And then the big thing for me, Melody, I, by that, by end of, um, I brought in, I worked out, I didn't have enough resources. I had four young kids working weekends and fortunately Forbes only had Saturday trade until one o'clock and Sunday for two hours, but still you never got a break. And so I decided I need to go and find some resources. So I started on a cadetship program or an intern program, went to a couple of local, um, as a one particular local girl, Tanya Dwyer, who was at Sydney uni. And I put her on a scholarship and rank said, Hey, look, how about I fund you through uni? You come and work for me in Falls and you do your intern year. We then, so Tanya came and did that. We then found another young pharmacist, um, a young bloke from Lake Ejelico called Simon Blacker. And it was actually, um, Simon was my intern. We tracked him down to college, um, convinced him to come to Forbes and he was a great breath of fresh air as well, along with Tanya. So suddenly I realized I had to be proactive in finding pharmacists. So went out, put this program in place, um, got these two great young pharmacists early on. Simon said straight from day one, Hey, you know what? I would like to be an owner. And within six months of him becoming a registered pharmacist, which is actually 25 years ago, last weekend, we bought a pharmacy in parks. Happened to be an MCAL store. And so over the next couple of years, 
Um, Simon Tanya and I brought Paul Jones in. He was a uni mate of Simon's, lived in Grenfell, which isn't far away. So we decided to that we could form this partnership and have a couple of pharmacies in the region, you know, share the workload of a pharmacist in the community town. Um, we had similar values around community. We'd all grown up in Forbes, Lake Angelico or Grenfell. So we, we understood communities in these regional areas. And then in 1999 or 2000, I went on my first trip overseas and I saw the big wide world in the US, I think it was. I remember seeing the pharmacies there and the scale of everything. And and we were just going through the GST. So I'd been working on the business around managing what was going to happen when 1st of January hit and did everything just wipe out of our you know systems on the millennium bug and GST was coming in. So I was trying to manage the, the operations. And I probably found with two really good young pharmacists and, and then Jones, you turned up three, I probably erred a bit more towards the management side and became a real a bug for me about getting management right systems and processes right across multiple stores. And then as the, the Simon and Paul and Tanya all sort of, as they, when I say got older, I'm talking one or two years older, you know, they started getting engaged and had, you know, different pressures to move, um, and needs to move to different areas. So then we bought another Amcal pharmacy in Dubbo. And the big point was probably in 2000, I decided I'd move to Sydney and, um, I took the kids down there and Ange and I moved to Sydney and we agreed to set up um, what was then called Country Farm, which was a group of stores in Forbes, Parks and Bathurst and Dubbo and run them under a, a banner. And Amcal at that point was going through massive changes. So we decided to go independent. We couldn't find a brand that suited our needs around the patient, the community, the team development. And so we took a big risk. We de-branded all Amcal and um, we just actually went to our local trading name. And a couple of years later, we then decided we should look at a brand and we did a branding strategy and we came up with Life Pharmacy Group. And the idea of that is each store still has its own identity. It's, you know, Flannery's Pharmacy in Forbes, a member of the Life Pharmacy Group, Aranamore Pharmacy in Dubbo, because that was where the store was and the historical name. So, but we use the brand then to represent, you know, a coordinated approach to care. It links people to, from a loyalty point of view, they can go through these towns and know we're all part of the same group. Um, gave a scale for uniforms, but also most importantly, that the people like the Simons, the Tanya, Paul, and then the other partners who've come in subsequently have all been the caliber of people that have created the culture that you saw in LPG. And yeah, that's why the, the most important thing I have and the most fortuitous thing I've had is the, 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 the luck in the people that have aligned with me and I've aligned with them as partners and not all of the, so the partners, people who've worked in their business for 20, 30 years, but don't want to be an owner, happy to be a pharmacist, happy to be a retail manager. They've been the huge part of the fabric of what is LPG. And you know, that culture has been built from the ground up by the people and I'm lucky to represent it. I'm lucky to be, you know, sort of, um, in, in touch with those stores and those people regularly, but really it's generated from, you know, all those partners and, and their belief in, the patient's well-being and their role as community pharmacists in these regional areas and in Canberra. And yeah, you only got to meet a few of them and, and see some of their achievements in different areas that they're, they're really innovative and their, their passion is, you know, unbridled. It's fantastic. And it's, in, that's, that's what inspires me. I get it from those guys every day when you talk to about what they're doing, whether it be good, bad or indifferent challenges of the day, they're always got something to, to remedy it and to move forward with for the patient, which is just incredible. That's amazing, Michael. Um, every time I hear some of your stories, ha I'm inspired. Truly am. And it shows because everyone who works for you, with you is just in the same vein. So as we round up, we've got, I've got two more questions. Now, this is going to become a tradition of the podcast. Um, you're going to have one question that's come from PAG, yes. team member in PAG. And one question that's going to come from ChatGBT, because right. AI is the future. Right. Okay. <laughs> so we asked ChatGPT, what would you like to ask Michael Flannery? And ChatGPT came back with, what do you want to be known for? Um, that's an easy one. I think um, putting the community back in the community pharmacy. That was a tagline we came up with, uh, with the Flannery's team, with Sarah back in 2018, when they were looking at, they put a submission for pharmacy of the year and we sat back and we probably evaluated where we believe we were as a pharmacy in at the time and as a group. 
and we'd got so caught up in price disclosure and so caught up in so much going on in the industry. Um, everything, every time we turned around and thought, what's the solution to that it, it seemed to be something from what we used to do in the old days, you know, and, and, you know, what was old was new again. And I think what we came back to was we're community pharmacists and I, what does that mean to us? So I would say that to me, it'd be putting the community back in the community pharmacy. Thank you for that. Um, I'll relay that to chat GPT. <laughs> Thank you. Do I get to ask who asked the other question or because chat GPT um, can get away with it? It's okay. It's okay. I think with this first one, because you're my first guest, you are, I can ask, you can ask. It's okay. Nice. Um, so this went out to the wide pack team and we said, I've got Michael Flannery coming on as a guest. What would you like to ask him? And the question from Mark Payton was, and he is part of the marketing team. You may know him. What would you say is your superpower? Uh, so super. I know one CEO said that in amongst chaos, he can still fall asleep. What would you say is your superpower? I don't think I have a superpower, but I think I have the ability to see um, the upside in most things. Oh, so you have absolute vision. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I'm normally pretty calm in crisis. My mind tends to be able to think of different things. And I, I tend not to, and you would know, having worked with me, Melody, that I, I tend not to, I've got plenty of ideas, but I tend not to come up with the answer too quickly. I try and just calmly look at things and think through. So I think, yeah, possibly, yeah, just looking looking for solutions. I tend to be able to have some insights into that. But I, I don't think that's a superpower. I just think. For solution just, and process building? Um, Solution. I'm not a good process person. Okay, so this the so, so finding the solutions to problems, which is actually a really good superpower because in amongst sixty days, most would have just seen the bulletin that sixty days was going to be introduced. Yep. Then you went that one step further and thought, okay, sixty days will be introduced, but what is the solution? What can we do more of? And yeah. it's probably resounded in even how you run life pharmacy groups as well, because you mentioned that at one point you had to stop and actually realize that you had to draw more people and resources. Yes. Because there was an issue with... Yeah, and no, I, I, I think probably finding a solution, the one thing I'll add to that, and yeah, I, I can say it's neither my parents alive, but I probably don't follow the rules often. Um, and I think probably, I've, you know, I, I was never a child who did well with rules. And, um, I think in an industry that is quite a conservative industry, my parents raised me to think outside the square. And probably if I look at, you know, when Simon and I were lucky to go to the U S and saw the minute clinic and brought back easy clinic idea, it took us three or four years working with Andrew, Nicole and Shannon to get it right. But I think seeing things that aren't there and trying to work out how they can be there for a benefit or an opportunity for the community pharmacy industry is probably, I'm not, not sort of restricted by what we should do. The conservative view site or insights or viewpoint, I actually happy to challenge them. And that's probably a trait that can be good and can be bad. Uh, but yeah, it's probably, probably one of my, that, that, that comes to my insight or my solution is, yeah, I'm probably happy to not follow the rules and think outside the square a bit um, to find a solution for the future. Thank you so much, Michael. So when I come up to you with those oddball suggestions, I don't expect a raised eyebrow. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I know that you need to get back onto the road to visit members there in WA. Um, you've been an amazing first guest on the podcast. You've been inspiring. You've poured yourself out to us and to the members. So I thank you for that. Um, we hope that you have a safe trip and we see you soon back in Sydney. And yeah, and I look forward to the next road trip. I can't Thank wait you. to see where you take me next. Oh, we've got some good plans, Melody. And I suppose uh, just to wrap from my perspective, the, the journey for me from a single pharmacy owner 
to partnerships, to a group, to Instigo, which was, as I said, the evolution when I moved to Sydney became a head office for the Life Pharmacy Group. And, and then, you know, the merger with Advantage and then working with Steve and Johnny and Michael and Warwick, you know, the opportunities that I'm, I surround myself with really good people and, yeah. and good thinkers. And then the merger with Pharmacy Alliance into the now Platform Alliance Group and adding Dennis's mindset um, and those who have worked with Dennis, as I said, he he's a very strategic thinker who plays chess games, three or four games ahead of where most people are at the time. You know, I think PAG's in a really good place um, and the industry's in a, the industry's under pressure, no doubt about it. But I think the support networks of the PAG team, the tools we're offering and the people that we have in the organisation, I mean, it's inspirational to see what they've done already in this six weeks to help people alleviate the stress of the 60-day policy. But at the same time, we also know people like yourself and your team are working on scope of practice with the pilot stores and the UTIs. So there's all this positive energy happening as well. At the same time, there's a lot of negativity in the industry. And I think the beauty of what the team that you work in and the, the team working in the PAG organisation um, is that they're all about the industry and all about the community ownership and the community pharmacy. And I think that's a great thing. And I look forward to, you know, six months time, apart from hearing what Steve's got to say about me, um, is seeing where the industry is after all this work that everyone's put in across the board. So yeah. thank you. Mary. No problems. Thank I will send you an email and a text message with Steve's response. <laughs> maybe I can, maybe I can vet his audio interview before it goes to air. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, we'll end it for today until next time. Thank you, Melody, and look forward to catching up soon. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Bye. Bye. At Platform Alliance Group, we believe that success is not just about individual accomplishments, but also about lifting each other up. Together, we can build a thriving and prosperous pharmacy industry that meets the needs of the patients and supports the Australian health system. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. And don't forget to share, like, and leave us a comment if you have found this episode of value or have any feedback. The podcast is promoted through social media, LinkedIn, YouTube, and major podcast platforms. And each episode can be found at the Pharmacy View webpage with links to the guest contact and business details. So once again, thank you for joining us today on the podcast and see you soon.